Behold, I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns on the right hand, but I do not see him. But he knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. My foot has held fast to his steps, and I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. But he is unchangeable. And who can turn him back? What he desires that he does. For he will complete what he appoints for me, and many such things are in his mind. Therefore, I am terrified at his presence. And when I consider, I am in dread of him. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. Yet I am not silenced because of the darkness, not because of the thick darkness that covers my face. Job, in this text, stands stripped before God. He has no family to comfort him. He has no possessions to distract him. He has no wealth to hire defense. He has no health to give him courage. He has no defender. He has no protector. He stands stripped. And before God, he acknowledges the truth that in our moments of being so stripped, we feel the weight of God's unchangeableness, of his mysterious interlocking plans which bring into our lives both joy and woe. The scriptures here and throughout our songs this morning declare that Jesus is king. That God is king over all things, both visible and invisible, the seen and the unseen. But king is a petty title, isn't it? It's very uh, human. It makes me think of uh, King Arthur and feudal battles between knights in shining armor. And in this, no way describes what we mean when we say Jesus is king. And yet, how do we capture in words what we mean when we say that. The scriptures uh, give us the insight, the wisdom, the visions of the prophets. And the prophets reveal to us in pale comparison, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means, though, clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind, in the storm, the clouds are the dust of his feet. His visage is like shining metal and blazing fire, the appearance of blinding brightness all around. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. It flashes forth flames of fire. It shakes the wilderness. It makes the deer give birth, but strips the forest bare, that all in his temple would cry out, Glory! His eyes see. His eyes test the children of men. His arm is mighty. His Strong, right hand is high. The Lord reigns and he is robed in majesty. He has put on strength as a belt and he has crushed Rahab like a carcass. He has scattered his enemies with his mighty arm. The mountains tremble and quake when he is angry. 
Smoke goes up from his nostrils, devouring fire, flames from his mouth. He bowed, and the heavens came down. Thick darkness was under his feet, and but from the brightness of him, before him hailstones and coals of fire breaking through the clouds. The Lord thunders in the heaven. So let the heavens be glad. And let the earth rejoice, and let the seas roar and all that fills it, and let the fields exult and everything in it. Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to judge the world. He comes to judge the world in his righteousness, and the peoples with his faithfulness. All this scripture declares to us by symbol and metaphor, petty Small, insignificant symbol and metaphor. And if they are so small in comparison to something so grand, ponder, O man, ponder, O woman, how much higher and greater and powerful and awful is the Lord God who reigns. Should this not drive us to our knees? For if even a tenth of this imagery is true. If the smallest metaphor of the smallest portion is even remotely close to the image that we will see, should we might be not driven to our knees at the very thought of him? Should we not tremble at his coming, let alone the promise of the apostle that we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, each and one of us, to give an account for what we have done with this life? So what rebels... And fools are we, church, who have been given such truth and yet with flippancy and carelessness treat the holy name of God, the holy work of the church, the giving of the gospel, the holy image of God that is sitting upon each and every brother and sister in Christ, the Holy Spirit who through sanctification is calling you out of the depths of sin and into the light of God's glory and holiness or the holy creation of land and sea and animal made by his will and word which sings his glory to those who have yet to hear his name, or this, this blessed season in which we ponder this great truth that God became man and dwelt among us and that we have seen his glory, that we have seen his grace and his truth. So Job's words this week have just undone me just undone me Christ reigns that is our theme for the day Christ reigns and if this is true how should we feel what should we think what should we do Job's words ring in my ears and it's so interesting because this seems so So not terrifying, and yet Job says that the image of God, he says, I am terrified, I tremble. From Psalm 2, verse 5 last week, to rejoice with trembling, to kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and we perish in the way. Jesus puts on a human face. God puts on a human face, an image that we never had, some knowledge of God that we never understood. And when we see Jesus, he comes into the world, and he doesn't 
come as they expect. He doesn't come initially as a conquering king. He comes as a slain savior, paying the debt for our sin that we might have entrance into the kingdom of God. And so he says things like, I am gentle and humble in heart, but this is not a new revelation. This is of old. This is what God has always been. The scriptures that I read earlier said, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and mercy. This is not new news. And yet none of this somehow diminishes the power, the awesomeness, the glory, the holiness, and even, yes, the wrath of God. And so when we see Jesus this morning, we should hear the words of Paul as well, who says that the wrath of God is being unveiled against the world for its unrighteousness and those who suppress the truth. Paul, the great purveyor of grace, of God through faith. Paul, the great purveyor of mercy, the one who tells us to have confidence, still says, don't be deceived. God still gets angry. He still sees sin in the same way that he always did. His holiness has not diminished. If anything, in Jesus Christ, his holiness has increased because now we see the terrible cost of sin. We see the terrible cost of our salvation. And so an invitation stands before us this morning to in pondering this manger scene to see it not as a human thing but as the king of glory and not to treat it with anything less than the holiness it deserves. I hope you listen to Laura's song this morning that you heard the words um, She's great, and she lets me uh, force her to sing it every, every Christmas. It's my favorite Christmas hymn, because I think it is the one that best captures what we see in this holy time. The light of light descended from the realms of endless day. Into what? Into what? Turn on the news. Endless night. Look at your heart. Look at our families. Look at what's around us. Black darkness imagine him stripping all of his power and forcing all of his holiness into the body of a man and walking through and seeing just the way we talk to one another what a powerful thing to see in jesus justice and truth those long lines of text that i gave you describing the almighty power of god this power has been displayed in his son This is what we have from Colossians 15 and 16, that Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were made in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or powers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And that is what we see, the King of glory. And this revelation comes to us not simply in the Gospels, but as we have been pondering over the past few weeks of what is the meaning of the coming of Jesus. Why did God become man? It is revealed early on in Isaiah chapter 11. I'll look at verse 1 here first. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now think of this, a stump. What is a stump? It is a dead tree. 
It is cut off. Its glory is gone. Its power is diminished. It is nothing. It is useless. It's a nuisance at best. It's something you stub your toe on and pay 500 bucks for somebody to come out and rip out of your lawn, right? That, it's, it's, it's dead. It's gone. And from this stump, God says, I will cut the stump off. I will let it die. And then I will do something miraculous. I will bring it back. God made an everlasting covenant with David, Jesse's son. So whenever we see Jesse's house, we should think in our minds both David and Solomon and Rehoboam and as the line goes on. Uh, we see this in 2 Samuel 2 and Isaiah 55 and Jeremiah 23. And that's a problem. That's a problem for those who still hold to Judaism but reject Jesus. Those who hold to the Old Testament but not to the New Testament because there hasn't been a Davidic king since 587 B.C. And today there is no one left who can trace their lineage back to, to David. So this is a real problem for those people. And we know that when the Israelites came back uh, from Babylon uh, 70 so odd years later, they had a man with him. His name was Zerubbabel. And you can read his story in Haggai. And, Haggai. Uh, and in that story, we see they're thinking that this is the one who is going to bring forth uh, the, the, the restoration of Israel, that this is the Messiah, this is the one who's going to be the king. This is going to fulfill Isaiah's words here, but what do we know? We know that God's desire was to cut it off. And so there is no king. And Jesus comes into the world, and we would ask the question, why, why kill it? Why not make kingship after kingship after kingship, and then, and then give Jesus you know, that exaltation because it is God's glory to do mysterious things to, for us. Uh, it is mystery as to why God would cut it off other than this, that he wanted to demonstrate his ability to do the impossible. To take that which is dead and bring it to life. And as we ponder those things done in Jesus and we ponder the promises offered to his church, let me ask you then, what is impossible in your life? What chain of addiction is holding you that God cannot break? What broken relationship can God not heal? What thing can God not do in your life? If he reigns over all that is and ever was and ever will be, what can God not do? Out of the stump, out of the root, out of that which is dead, God will raise forth the Messiah, the Savior, the King. And he will, we read in this text at the end of verse two or verse one, he will bear fruit. What will that fruit look like? Look at verse two, Isaiah 11, verse two. And, his, uh, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. The spirit of the Lord shall be upon him. He, he will be anointed with power. The apostles say, especially Peter in Acts chapter 2, he says that, that Jesus demonstrated his anointedness. He demonstrated his messianic power. He demonstrated that he was the Son of God through signs, through miracles, through healings. Never let anyone tell you that those are not significant. Never let anyone try to convince you that those are not true or that they don't matter or that they're metaphorical or that they're just symbol or that they're just story. No, those are integral to what Jesus did. They are how Jesus demonstrated, I am God's agent I have healed, I have done miracles, I have spoke his word. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Imagine to see those things. The outpouring of God's power. He will be full of wisdom and understanding. The prophets tell us 
that the Messiah will perceive and make decisions. The king that will come, he will perceive and make decisions in ways in which we can't. Because look at the end of verse 3 there. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. He will be able to see into the heart. Remember the story uh, where Jesus is in the room and they tear open the top of the house and they, they bring down the paralytic right, right on the mat and Jesus says to him, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And the Pharisees are all around and they're grumbling and they're muttering amongst themselves and they're saying, no one can forgive sins except for God alone. And Jesus, they're absolutely right, aren't they? Absolutely right. Because they've missed the point though. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father has come into their midst. The light of light has descended into the realms of endless day. So he has the power to forgive sins. But Jesus hears them, not, not by what he hears, right? But he senses in their heart. He can see through. So the king that's going to come will no longer be lied to by lawyers. And he will no longer find legal loopholes. He will judge by righteousness and truth. Because he can see through all our deceptions. Job says, I am terrified before him. Because he's laid bare. Because Job has nothing left to protect him. And he knows that he stands before God, whether he's clothed or naked, he stands before God naked. God sees right through to him. Right through to his heart. And don't think that you're standing before God today and you're hiding anything. The king sees it all. And he calls you. He calls you. He invites you. He tells you this because this is the day of repentance. This is the day of salvation. This is the day when you bend your knee before the king now before it's too late. That's why we're given this holy insight. The king will come and he will judge the world in righteousness. He will judge the peoples with his faithfulness. The spirit of counsel will be upon him. I invite you to Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I find um, in my conversations with people, people have a lot of ideas about Jesus. Like a lot of ideas about what Jesus said or what Jesus did or what Jesus should do or any of these kinds of things. Reasons why they don't believe in Jesus. uh, Reasons why they think Jesus is wrong. And yet I find almost always they've never even read what Jesus had to say. And I'm talking about Christians. Open the scriptures and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you tell me whether or not Jesus has the spirit of counsel upon him. I love this scene with the apostles in John 6 where he's preached this word. And the word is, I, I, I don't know that I know what to do with it completely. Jesus says, my body is true food and my flesh is true drink. True drink. And everybody's standing around saying, what in the world are you talking about, Jesus? And everyone leaves him. And Jesus turns and he sees the apostles still standing there. And he says, why, why are you still here? And they say, you have the words of life. Where are we going to go? It's because you don't understand it all. You sense the truth of it. And Jesus' counsel is the counsel that we should hear. The spirit of counsel is upon him and might. There is no power that can stand against him. No weapon that can thwart his will. No human design that can fight his desires. God, as we read in Job, he is unchangeable. And who can turn him back? What he desires, he does. There is no opposition to this king. There is no stopping this king. There is no opposing this king. You can rebel for a time, but when he comes again and his power and his might is displayed, all things are laid bare before him and we will all stand as Job does. 
So to all of this, I would draw your mind again to that idea of the fruit that we receive there at the end of verse 1 in chapter 11 of Isaiah. And it makes me think of this. Jesus, when he speaks of fruit, he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit, much fruit. It draws my mind into thinking about the kind of fruit that this Messiah is to bear and what Jesus seemed to be very keen about doing when he was walking this earth is gathering disciples and teaching them how to bear fruit, which is, a, is an incredible thought if you just spend a moment to consider it, that you are the fruit of Jesus' work. That if you have grafted your life into his, that you are abiding in him and he is abiding in you and the, the spirit of wisdom and counsel and power and might and all this stuff, that this is, this is what we are, we are leeching off of, off of Jesus Christ. And we are able then to bear, bear fruit. As Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, he talks to the church there and he says, listen, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Why? Not just because you are to draw more people to him by the life that you live, but that you are being prepared even now to live under his reign. God is preparing you now for the kingdom of God. He's preparing you now for Jesus coming so that you will pass through the judgment and you will dwell in his presence forever. That's God's desire. That's God's design. It is up to us to accept it and live according to it. And that's incredible if you think about it, that when Isaiah prophesies there is going to come fruit from this Messiah, and you ponder for a moment that you are his fruit, that means you have a hand in the fulfillment of the prophecies of the king. Jesus puts, or Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians, that God has put his treasure in jars of clay. Jars of clay that you are the messenger, that you are the bearers of the fruit of the Spirit, that you are the proof that Jesus came, that you are the proof that the Spirit is working, that you are the proof of holiness and truth and justice and faithfulness. You are that. And that's so important because the world is insane right now. My goodness. My goodness. Like, I'm, I'm trying to figure out which moral hill to stand on right now and, and rant about without like, going completely tangential. It's insane. And what's interesting about this is that as soon as one of these controversial, hot-button, crazy, crazy, insane things happen, people suddenly divide into camps. We polarize because of emotions. And we, we, we both... Criticize this and love it, don't we? Just love it. Man, there's nothing I love more than throwing stones on Facebook. All of a sudden, something happens. Shooting or terrorist attack or something. Gun control, liberal conservative. What are we going to do about Syrian, Syrian refugees? Liberal conservative and Christians dividing themselves and then begin throwing stones at one another. Well, you're not a real Christian and you're not a real Christian. You're not a real Christian and you're not a real Christian. It's insane. The fruit that is promised to us is the fruit of the Spirit. It is love, it is joy, it is peace, and it is patience. And what I notice is that all of us seem to be incredibly impatient today. We are the people for whom time does not touch. We see eternity 
spread out before us. This morning I was talking in our, our, our new members class and we were looking at the way that God punished the northern and the, the southern tribes, that he punished the Israelites and he scattered them throughout the nations and they must have just seen it as punishment. But we, 2,000 plus years later looking at it, can see how God scattered the Israelites so that Paul could go throughout Asia Minor preaching the gospel so that people could hear it. Now, we can't see that then. They couldn't see that now. But we can see it now because time doesn't hold anything to us. If you are eternal, if you are eternal, then why are you being caught up in the scandals and petty arguments of the day? You have been called to do one thing. You have been called to share Jesus. That's what we do. When we get caught up in other things, we waste our time and we end up looking like fools. We are called to spread the gospel. Do that, and everything else will take care of itself, because I tell you what, it isn't guns, and it isn't drugs, and it isn't, uh, it isn't Facebook, and it isn't all these things. The problem is the heart, that we are sinful people, and until the gospel breaks you, there is nothing that can help you. So if you want to help the world, preach the gospel. If you want to save people, preach Jesus. If you want to show somebody something better, then align your life according to the teachings of Holy Scripture. Nothing else will help. Nothing else will save. Only Jesus. Only the gospel. That ended up being tangential anyway. (laughs) I hear resistance even as I say these things. I hear resistance... uh, because we're, we're really allergic to this idea of kingship. We're really allergic to this idea of proclaiming the gospel. We're really allergic to it because, because uh, you know, isn't Jesus all love? And, and isn't it all about peace? And isn't it all about, you know, uh, I, I, I constantly get this thrown around. I, you know, see these passages in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6, if you'd look there. Verses 6 through 10. I'm not going to read all of them. I'm just going to read 6. Please read the rest of it. But, but in Isaiah 6 uh, through 10, we kind of catch a glimpse of uh, what Jesus is going to do when he comes again. And we read in verse 6 these beautiful words. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fatted calf. I love that. It's like the one that's like perfectly marble. Like you don't even want to cook it. It's going to be so good. Like this is the one that the lion should just dive at and eat. The fatted calf, they will dwell together. And what? A little child's going to lead them all. Predator and prey. That there's going to be a fundamental shift, a fundamental change, that things are going to be completely different. And we cling to this, and we see people talk like this, um, but the problem is we often forget chronology and context. And we were talking, I was talking with somebody this week about how to read the Bible. and You always read the whole book. And you always read the whole chapter, and then you read the chapters before and after it, because chapters are fictitious. We added those later on, right? That's not original to Holy Scripture. And so you have to read everything. And we jump to texts that we love, and we want to jump to this text because lion and lamb laying down together sounds really amazing in this world, and we ought to be the agents that are sort of making that happen, except for we can't make that happen. We've skipped over verses 3 through 5. And these are important, because chronologically these speak. Second half of verse 3, he shall not judge by what he sees, what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and he will 
and with the breath of his lips he will kill the wicked. Now I know that this is completely on PC. Like, I, I, I know that. I know that, like, that's just, that sounds absolutely outrageous to all of us in our sort of sanitized world where the only violence most of us experience is virtually on TV. And most of us are so used to sin. And, and it's, not, it's not necessarily your fault because, like, man, I can't drive down the road without being inundated with sin, right? We can't do anything in our, in our sin-soaked world. And we're so used to it, though, we don't even notice it when it's standing in front of us. But what we see in this text here is that before, before the peace, before the wolf lies down with the lamb, before the little child leads a lion and a fat calf, before all of these things happen, what has to come first? Last week's sermon, Christ conquers. Christ must come and he must crush everything. By God, by, um, we, we read earlier, by no means will God clear the guilty. And what do we read from Romans, that verse that you've probably all memorized, the wages of sin is death. It always has been. And it always will be. The wages of sin is death. No matter how much it scandalizes your friends, your neighbors, your enemies, and the outside world, the wages of sin is always death. And so, that must come first. We need to read, we, and I want to I avoid this because I see so many Christians doing that these, these, these days. We cannot read these words about Jesus coming. We can't read Revelation 21 and 22. We can't read Isaiah 2. We can't read Jeremiah 23. We can't read these passages all big and doughy-eyed saying that hey, it doesn't matter who it is. We're just welcoming all into the kingdom of God. No, it doesn't work that way. God has come to judge the world in righteousness. He has come to execute justice. And we all want justice, of course, just not when it comes to us. But the problem is, if God is coming to judge the world in righteousness, and you aren't righteous, what does that mean? That means your judge, the judgment falls upon you. If God is going to be the good God that we claim that he is, that the scriptures declare him to be, then what is going to happen? And in all of this holiday cheer, and this, this is the thing, I mean, I, I, it looks like Christmas like, like vomited on our stage, and I love it. I mean, I, I love it. I love it kitschy and bright, and like if we could hang some Star Trek ornaments that make noise on these things, that would be even better. I love it. I am not downing holiday cheer, and I'm not asking you to leave here feeling morose and guilty and poor and, and like, oh, woe is me. I'm not, I'm not trying to get to that at all. What I'm trying to get you to do is to be serious about this season. And we can be serious without being sad, right? And we can recognize the seriousness of what we are talking about when we talk about the coming of Jesus Christ. We can communicate that by the way that we treat it and the way that we think it and, and how we pour ourselves in this season. Please, pour yourselves in this season through the prophets and through the scriptures, reading it and letting it fill your mind because these are deep things. These are amazing things. These are tidings of great joy, but it didn't mean that people went frivolously about it. It meant they stopped and stared in awe. When the angels appeared, what did the shepherds do? They didn't do a jig. They fell on their faces before God. And they went to see the thing, and they stood in awestruck silence, contemplating what does it mean to say God became man. It's incredible. It's incredible. It's so deep and wide and vast and wonderful that when we get into the kingdom of God, we will still spend all of eternity pondering that great truth, standing before that great glory. 
If that is the hunger in your heart, that means that God is calling you. It means that God is calling you to leave behind all of the frivolous things and to set your mind upon him. To follow through what the apostle told the Colossian church, church, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in your good works and increasing in your knowledge of him. Bearing fruits by going out to preach the gospel, increasing in your knowledge of him because you have poured yourself into the holy scriptures. Job laid me low this week. I... Uh, I kept underlining things and then reading it again and underlining more things because these words just struck me. Therefore, I am terrified at his presence. When I consider him, I am in dread of him, that God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. And yet it hasn't brought me to silence, he says. It hasn't brought me to silence. It hasn't stopped me. It's pushed me on. I think of the prophecy that we read last week from, Isaiah, uh, from Psalm chapter 2 where uh, the psalmist ends that psalm saying, so serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling because to stand before the Lord is to tremble, is to quake, is to wonder, to be caught in awe. I think of, uh, think of this great truth. I think of my own sinfulness. I think of my own failures. I think of the king who is coming to judge the world in righteousness, to judge the peoples with his faithfulness. And I think I am not righteous and I am not faithful. That I am undone, that I am broken, that I am hollow, that I am empty, that I am a man of many sins. And were that the end of the king's story, I'm coming to judge the world, get ready for it. And yet we know we can't. We know we aren't able. We know we aren't strong. We know we aren't holy. We know we mess up. We know we are failures. We know that sin has caught us all in its net. And that is a terrible story. But for Jesus. But for Advent. But for the coming of the Messiah. For whom the scriptures declare that while we were still weak. At the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were the enemies of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now than we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? For he is not dead. He is alive. More than that then, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received that reconciliation. And that, my friends, is good news. It is awesome. It is earth-shattering. It is knee-bending. It is amazing news that God has made it available for you to pass through his judgment, that his kingship is now good news to us because we belong. If we are full of unrighteousness and unholiness, if we don't walk in his, his ways, if we don't treat him as though he is king, we don't belong in his reign. We don't belong in his kingdom. We don't belong in heaven. But if God has saved us by his son and we have accepted his gift and we have received his salvation, then things are now different. Things are now different. 
And so this morning I ask you, are things different for you? Have you accepted? Have you laid yourself before God? Have you said, I believe? Have you been washed in the waters of baptism? Have you put your life on the road of Jesus? And have you continued to follow that road? If at any of those places you find that you have failed, that you have lacked that you have stopped, that you have stepped to the right or you have stepped to the left or you have deviated from his ways, then I proclaim to you, repent. Change your life. And let the Spirit fill you with joy. This is a moment of change. This is a moment for you to come down front if you want to make a decision publicly or make a decision in your seat. But either way, decide to follow Jesus today. Please stand as we sing.